Welcome to the Inside Carolina podcast, presented by Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill. Get 15% off your online order with the promo code HEELS15. Go to jerseymikes.com slash order now. Welcome to the Inside Carolina podcast. John Siegel here with Taylor Vipolis and EJ Wilson for the weekly Ask Taylor and EJ show. Guys, before we get into the questions, let's go ahead and start things off with getting your thoughts on the Miami game. EJ, you know, you and I kind of went out on that limb and uh, said we thought Carolina might prevail in that game. That did not happen by about, mm, you know, halfway through the second quarter. I think everyone could tell where that one was. Yeah, I mean, everyone could tell where that one was going. So let's start with you, EJ, man. When you were sitting there watching that that game, you know, what did you think during it? And then what was your takeaway after? I think I literally said out loud, like they they're doing the exact opposite of like what I said they needed to do to win. I mean, they gave up the uh, the, the big turnovers, they gave up the big plays, and they weren't able to stop them on uh, defense. So it was hard to watch. I mean, we we kind of talked so much about uh, Chaz Surratt coming back and seeing what he can do, and uh, he comes out and throws three interceptions. I mean, he looked very good running the ball, but I mean, it it, it was a disappointing loss. I had more. I I had a, a hope that they at least make it competitive, but it it was just a beat down. Yeah, I mean, that sums it up pretty nicely right there. So, Taylor, what about you? Did you actually manage to watch the whole thing, or was there a point where you were just like, you know, I've seen enough, and you decided to go be productive with the rest of your evening? No, I watched the whole game, unfortunately. They got to a point in the fourth quarter where I really wanted to uh, turn it off. But for uh, the sake of doing my recap video, I was like, oh, I just have to tough it out and <laughs> – unfortunately uh watch the rest of the game and i think if you're carolina i don't think not too many people expected carolina to win but the way they lost was just frustrating where it was the same problems over and over again and you really didn't give yourself a fair chance to win with the turnovers and miami converting those points off turnovers you spotted them 24 points so it's really hard to tell as a team where you stack up because you just never gave yourself a chance against Miami. Yeah, and like you said, the offense just handing the Hurricanes points after points. So let's go ahead and start there. And, you know, I don't I don't want to make this seem as if we're trying to pile on to any guys, but I think it's important that when you're talking about the quarterback play of Surratt and Elliott, I'm, I'm a positive that if, if anyone had asked him after the game, hey, how did you guys do tonight? They would have said, we did not perform well because they're, they're athletes. They can tell how they're doing a lot better than most of us can sitting at home on a couch. And the question that we got was, do either of you guys recall seeing quarterbacks perform that badly ever during your playing careers? And I think it was to the point where uh, Chaz had a negative quarterback rating, which Buck mentioned on, on his podcast and I've never seen that before. So Taylor, let's start with you, you know, back when just throughout your entire football career, have you ever seen anything like uh, that quarterback performance that we saw against Miami at the collegiate level? I've never seen quarterback performance of what we saw against Miami. I think it was the same problems. Kind of like I was saying, Nathan Elliott, he's just physically limited in what he can do throwing the ball. And then, everybody's hope was that Chaz Surratt with his athleticism could kind of bring this new dynamic to the offense. And at first he, he did look, look the part, especially in the running game, but 
it's the same problems with him where it just looks like his decision-making is off. He can't really go through his progressions. He's locking in on one receiver. So I've, I've never seen um, a quarterback performance like that. And I just think it's, it's strange when you watch other teams games, like you watch Virginia tech and yeah, Josh Jackson goes down for the season. That could have been a catastrophic injury for them, but they have a quarterback who right now he looks just as good, if not better than him. Um, Duke, Daniel Jones goes down. They don't miss a beat when their backup goes in. And right now for Carolina, they can't find one quarterback that can play above average to good football. All right. Now, EJ, you know, Taylor's had the fortune of being on some Carolina teams with Marquise Williams and Mitch Trubisky, but, but Carolina didn't exactly have those talents at quarterback when you were playing. So, you know, do you recall ever watching some guys struggle through games and have anything close to what Chaz and Elliot did uh, last Thursday? Yeah, I have had my fair share of uh, quarterbacks on my teams, but um, honestly, I, I don't think they were that bad. The worst performance I probably saw was uh, 2006. Uh, do you remember Joe Daly? Uh, he transferred in from, I think, Nebraska. Yep. We're, pl- we're, we're, <laughs> we're playing Wake Forest, and uh, this guy is just having the, the worst game I've ever seen. And we ended up, uh, we, we kind of kept the game close, but we ended up losing that game because uh, he fumbled the handoff or something. Somebody just took the handoff out of his hand. So that's the closest that I've seen, but I still haven't seen anything to the magnitude of what we saw Thursday night. I mean, I understand if you come out and you just miss some throws, you're overthrowing guys, but to to turn the ball over six times from one position group is, is just kind of unheard of. I've honestly never even seen two guys in the same position group uh, have that sort of game, let alone two quarterbacks. Also, shout out Bryn Renner. I play with Bryn Renner too. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot, yeah. <laughs> Bryn, um, that was the first year that you walked on, right, yeah, Taylor? Yeah. He's a slinger. Nice. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, it's it's kind of the shows the state of the program where imagine how good Carolina's season could be if Bryn Renner was the quarterback. I mean, I definitely think that we are having way different conversations at this point. But, you know, looking at specifically how Elliott and Surratt played, EJ, from the defensive position, you know, did you see anything that Miami was really doing to cause – those turnovers and specifically the the pick sixes or you know was did it all just come down to the UNC quarterbacks just not making the the right throws I hate to sound like I'm picking sides but I, I really do feel like that of course a lot some of the fumbles that uh Nathan Elliott had were caused by the defense I mean one I mean we had we got a sack where he fumbled where it was just a four man rush I mean they're only they're not even blitzing they're sending four guys and then uh Chad Surratt throws an interception right into a blitz so I mean I think the interceptions were a lot uh maybe you can blame them on rust but at the same time I feel like Chad should be preparing as if he was a starter, no matter what, especially if he expects to take over that role. So I, I don't see I don't I don't really think there's an excuse for some of the throws that he made. And uh, even with Nathan Elliott, yeah, Miami, some of that was Miami in their pass rush and their ability to just be ball hawks. But you got to know that those guys are coming and you got to know the personnel and the defense that you're playing against. So you, you have to be extra conscious of protecting the ball. So I think that both of those situations are on us, whether it be the interceptions or the uh, fumbles. And then Taylor, speaking as a wide receiver, and about the, those uh, the in- interceptions specifically, but even like what DJ said, where 
uh, the ball got uh, put on the ground during some of the handoffs, you know, when you're looking at from that wide receiver perspective, were there any throws that you thought, okay, maybe the wide receiver ran a, a wrong route, or maybe they could have done more to try to prevent that from happening? Anything like that? On Chasserat's passes, I don't think there was anything the receivers could have done differently. Um, I think he just got locked in. He knew where he was going to go pre-snap, where Coach Fedora's offense, you have to be able to go through progressions. It's not like this high school level football where you, you're you tagging like the Z receiver and you're like, I'm going to throw to the Z receiver every time. You have to be able to go through your first read. If the first read's not there, go to the second window and be able to, to work your way through the field. And I just feel like Chasserat really struggled in that capacity. Um, and then Nathan Elliott, his, his problems were the interior of the offensive line. Like EJ mentioned, Miami, a lot of the times they were able to bring just four people and they were going right at the interior O-line and just doing these kind of like complex uh, stunts and uh, alignments, and they were just confusing them. So it was it was all the problems that you kind of knew going into the game, and uh, I think a lot of people were just hoping that those were just going to be flukes, the interior of the offensive line struggling, um, Chasserat being a better decision maker in year two on in the – as a starting, not starting quarterback, but a quarterback playing some meaningful reps. And it was, it, it was as bad as I can remember quarterback performance. All right, guys. So let's get into some questions that were asked specifically to both of you and then a couple of joint ones as well. So Taylor, this question was for you is, do you think that there is beef between coach Rick of Miami and coach Fedora? Uh, the person commented that their handshakes during the last two years have kind of been on the icy side. So you know, is that something that you've noticed or uh, was that something that, you know, that, that you kind of have, have picked up on? Uh, I haven't noticed anything like that. I think it's more so just a, a heat of the moment thing. Um, if anything, Coach Fedora, he probably just wanted to get out of Miami. Um, it was a terrible loss where you basically just got beat from right from the jump. So I don't, I think it was more Coach Rick was probably looking to have like a conversation and Coach Fedora was more like, I'm just trying to get out of here because all the coaches, they go to all these events together. And from what I know, they're all, they're all really friendly and uh, they could all have a conversation with each other. But, you know, when you lose by 40 points on national TV and you're X miles away from home, you're, you're just trying to get out of there. Gotcha. All right. And then EJ, your question was uh, when you were on the last team coached by Coach Bunting, when you guys were one and three coming off a, a demoralizing loss, what was the atmosphere like in the locker room for you guys? It wasn't a very good one. I mean, unfortunately, when I got there, uh, some of the players, were they kind of accepted the culture of losing. So it wasn't as dismal uh, as you thought it would be, which was kind of disheartening for me. I mean, I didn't have a lot of success playing uh, football in high school, but it still hurt to lose. And it just kind of seemed like some of those guys, it didn't bother them that much that we were losing or that we were one and three. So I guess I had that per- I had that perspective in that locker room. And then we can fast forward to uh, Coach Davis's first year where we started losing a few games. And, I mean, we we knew we could win and we knew we were better. So I guess it was just a different attitude in the locker room. Uh, that one was a little bit more – it wasn't as – it wasn't 
dismal. The guys kind of hung their head after the games, but I mean, Coach Davis and and our captains just kind of picked us up and they say, hey, we still got a lot to play for. The season's not completely over. So I just think that that's the attitude that the guys need to have. So unfortunately, I've been on, I've been in two different atmospheres dealing with the same situation. All right, guys. So before we get to the questions for both of y'all, let's take a quick moment to talk about everyone's favorite subject, which that being food and specifically going to be talking about Jersey Mike subs of Chapel Hill. Are you looking for a great, delicious lunch or a tailgating option before the big game? Well, Jersey Mike subs of Chapel Hill is here for you. They have partnered with the Inside Carolina podcast to offer a great deal for our listeners. Right now, you can use the code HEELS15 to get 15% off of your whole order. This is an online promotion only, so you go to jerseymikes.com slash order, click on the location nearest to you, click order, pick your favorite sub, and at checkout, enter HEELS15, and you get that 15% off of your whole order. You get to skip the line, head straight to the register, grab your food, and you're on your way. It's my opinion that Jersey Mike Subs is the superior sub option. They're tasty, delicious, and they always hit the spot. So do it today. Place an online order at one of the four Chapel Hill and Hillsborough locations. Those are on Elliott Road, off of MLK, and at the Falcon Bridge Shopping Center. And the one in Hillsborough is off of exit 261. It's a super easy process. Just remember the code HEELS15. And also look for Jersey Mike's inside of Keenan Stadium this season and also with, with the tailgate guys this fall. So support the IC podcast and get a discount off of your Jersey Mike's order. It's a win-win. All right, guys. So the questions that were for both of you, and the first one is uh, this kind of a playoff of the one that, that you got earlier, Taylor, but I wanted EJ to answer this one first, is that can you guys tell when opposing coaches or even coaching staffs just do not like each other? And if you ever did come across that, what's a good story that you may have? You can definitely tell. You can tell in, in kind of the, the comments leading up to the game. I mean, coaches are usually very complimentary of each other no matter what their feelings are, but you can just kind of tell in, in, in some of the comments that they make. Um, so uh, I've definitely been in a lot of situations. I know Coach, Coach Bunning in uh, particular was not fond of too many other coaches, particularly um, Chuck Amato. Uh, there are a lot of <laughs> different cartoons, and uh, those guys were both such big personalities. But I'll probably say the biggest one, um, I forget who was coaching it uh, at NC State my senior year, but he had the audacity to mail us a signed game ball that uh, Coach Davis showed us at the beginning of the training camp that year that he had actually gotten from NC State after we played them. So uh, I know coach Davis wasn't too fond of him. So that's probably the, the best story that I have of, of two coaches just really not getting along. Ooh, ouch. Dang. All right, Taylor, what about you, man? Have you ever seen that? And then do you have a story that you can also share? You could definitely tell, I think when a coach uh, doesn't like another coaching staff because it just added motivation for them. Uh, they might mention it in the team meeting. They might mention it in like a staff, a staff type meeting, how like what it adds to the game that you're about to go into. Um, I can't share any stories, but I think it's not too hard to figure out like what staff the Carolina staff probably doesn't like right now. All right. Yeah, I didn't know if maybe if you had anything similar to getting mailed a game ball. I mean, that's no, nothing like that. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's pretty bad. I mean, I don't know. Like, what was the the situation like though? 
um, after UNC did the whole spray paint over there at, at the Duke, um, you know, and then Duke made a big like deal about that. You know, what'd you guys kind of, kind of hear from the coaches and what was your thought on that? Yeah, I know Duke wasn't happy about that, but I don't think it was ever Cutcliffe versus Fedora because whenever they go to those golf events, I know Coach Fedora and Coach Cutcliffe, like they'll talk football, they'll talk, you know, how their families are doing and how their lives are going. So I don't think it ever got personal between Coach Fedora and Coach Cutcliffe. I think it was just a situation where the ADs kind of had to handle it, and uh, it just happened to be the football team. All right, so let's move on to the next question, guys, which is, do you think that the Heels should play a 12th game this season? Very interesting question there. So, Taylor, why why don't you start us off? I have two answers to this. The competitor in me says, yeah, take take a 12th game. Uh, You want another chance to go out there with your brothers. You want a chance to go out there to to show the fans what you could do. And uh, it's just it's just more football. You you went through all of spring ball. You went through all of summer. Everything you did from January on, you worked to play more football games. So from a team perspective, I would want to play a 12th game. From a fan perspective, I would not want to watch another game if the performance on the field is going to be, you know, what we saw in the Miami game, what we saw in the ECU game, because – you know, that's that's a huge time investment, three, three, four hours of your day when you could be doing something else compared to or even further, if you're going to the game and, you know, you have to drive like if I had wanted to go to the game, that's a three hour drive. I have to find a hotel. I have to find tickets. Um, so the competitor in me and from a team perspective, I would say, yeah, I want to play a 12th game from a fan perspective. If this season keeps up, I would cut the season all right dj what about your thoughts man i think they definitely should play that 12th game and for two reasons for one i think they owe it to the seniors who've paid their dues and been in this program for four sometimes five years i think that they deserve to have a full season and actually get to go out and represent the university that they love in competition so i definitely think they should get the chance two i think that not playing that game sets a, a negative, a more negative tone going to the off season. I feel like that if they don't make up that game or if they have a choice to make up that game and they choose not to, I, I don't think that that sets the right tone. So, I mean, even, even for me as a fan, uh, as hard as it may be to watch, I still will want to see them play that, play that 12th game. I mean, because you still want to see those guys go out and compete. I mean, I, I still would, if it's the last game of the season, and those guys go out and somehow manage to uh, pull off a win. I mean, that's that's more for the fans to look forward to going in the next season, and it's just putting a positive note not only to the season but the careers of those seniors. Yeah, I definitely agree with EJ that from a UNC perspective, if they don't schedule a 12th game, it's not like you know they're they have to plan for an ACC championship game. Even NC State worked it into their contract when they scheduled the ECU game that if both teams aren't in the ACC championship, they'll play that December 1st. So if you're North Carolina and you're seeing other teams that had their games canceled getting scheduled and you don't schedule a game, it looks like, you know, you were afraid, you wanted the season to end. So from a North Carolina perspective, I would say they definitely need to schedule a 12th game. So the only thing that I would kind of raise is maybe a counter to that 
is what about the player suspensions? Because since Carolina is only playing 11 games, you know, that's how Chaz was able to play in Miami. And I think that gets guys like Malik Carney back extra because they only have to sit out three games. If you're looking at it from that team perspective, would either of you think that uh, having guys back one extra game off of their suspensions, would that change your answer at all? EJ, start with you. I think that that may change my answer a little bit, but I still overall, uh, I take it in consideration, but overall, I still think they should play that game. I mean, at the end of the day, these guys are suspended because of choices they made. And I don't think that whether they play or not should affect whether the other guys who did the right thing should have the chance to play and compete. Mm -hmm. All right, Taylor. Yeah, I was going to echo what EJ just said at the end there, that Carolina was already planning for these guys to miss four games regardless. And if you don't schedule a 12th game because you want these guys to, you know, not face the consequences of their actions from the preseason, you're just doing uh, a disservice to the rest of the team that did everything the right way by not giving them an extra game to play. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about the future. And we're going to go ahead and touch again on the quarterback position. I mean, understandably, it's the hot-button topic for Carolina fans. And we talked about this a little bit last week, guys, but now that we have seen how Chaz did against Miami and how Elliott played in that game as well, looking to the true freshman quarterbacks with Fortin and Reuter, do you guys think that Fedora should use this bye week to get one of those guys prepared or is it a situation where um, where he may want to give Chaz Surratt the extra uh, chance to prove himself because Mike Ingersoll made the point last week that with Chaz being on the practice squad, he didn't think that Chaz was going to be really mentally prepared for Miami. And turns out that kind of looked like what might be the, the situation. But considering the true freshman, Taylor, do you think that the time has come to see what those guys could potentially do against Virginia Tech in, I guess, about 10 days now? I think you should definitely be preparing them to play, not, you know, not get starting reps if if you don't think those guys are going to be better because you don't want to just throw a true freshman out there just for the sake of throwing a, th- a true freshman out there. Because if he is just as unprepared as, you know, these other quarterbacks, yeah, they have four games for a redshirt, but, you know, you could do further damage uh, mentally, further damage physically if these kids just aren't prepared. And I agree with what Mike said about Chaz probably not being, you know, 100% prepared for the Miami game. So if I'm Carolina, I would start Chaz at for the next game just because – I think you've seen a full body of work from Nathan Elliott and what Nathan Elliott brings to the table. And I think it's extremely limited, but at least Chasserat gives you this running game option and, you know, the hope that he can improve his progressions and his reads with more time to prepare and more time knowing he's going to be the guy. But ultimately that's on Chasserat and how he prepares and how he's able to break down the defense. All right, EJ, what about you? Do you think it's time to to put a true freshman out there and see what they can do? Or would you likewise like to see a little bit more out of Chaz Surratt? I would like to see a little bit more out of Chaz. And I agree with Taylor. We know what Nathan Elliott can do. Um, 
and we saw Chaz come out and struggle a little bit. But we, but what we do know is that he can he can get us some positive and big plays with his legs. I do think that it's time to start getting one of those freshmen ready. And I do think that if Chaz comes out and struggle, I do think it's worth maybe putting him in in the second half of a game just to see how he reacts with live bullets. And I mean, if the guy go out goes out and have a good game, you have still have three and a, three and a half more halves to really see if this is the guy that's going to finish the season, is this the guy that's going to be our starter for next year? So I do think it's definitely worth seriously getting some of them ready. Like Taylor said, maybe not getting starter reps, but definitely uh, getting in there some and being a major part of the game plan. All right. So let's take another quick commercial break, y'all, to talk about Heels Travel. They offer one of the best road trip options for UNC away games. And in fact, they have a great package coming up for the game in Charlottesville on 27th. It's a great game to go to. In late October, Charlottesville, the leaves are going to be changing. It's going to be a beautiful scenery. And that is a one-day bus trip that leaves from Chapel Hill and returns the same day. So you don't even have to worry about driving. You get to go to the game with a bunch of, of other diehard Carolina fans and watch the Heels take on Virginia. To look into that package, you can visit heelstravel.com now or call 336-855-0060. Again, that's heelstravel.com or call 336-855-0060 to book. Additionally, Heels Travel is selling packages for two UNC basketball games in Las Vegas over Thanksgiving weekend, two Tar Heel games, and three nights in Vegas, and no travel headaches or concerns. That package includes a round-trip airfare from RDU, round-trip transportation from the airport to the hotel, and a three-night stay at the Aria Resort and Casino. Visit HeelsTravel.com now or call 336-855-0060 to book. Heels Travel, there's no better way to get to away games. All right, guys, so let's go back to some of the questions here. And the next one that we're going to talk about uh, just talks, you know, to kind of get your thoughts on what's led to this point in Carolina's season. And the question was, do you think that Carolina is lacking an edge in coaching? Are they lacking playmakers or are they lacking team leaders? So, EJ, let's get, get your thoughts as to where kind of everything starts for why the Tar Heels have been struggling so far. I'll start at the top, and I think the biggest thing that they're missing is team leadership. I feel like if they had adequate leadership in place, then the guys wouldn't have sold the sneakers, which wouldn't have put them in an early season deficit of knowing that they weren't going to have their players and kind of have to do this mix and match of one player not playing this week, and maybe he'll be, he'll be, he'll be available next week. So team leadership early on in the offseason could have kept them from the shoes, selling the shoes and, and the suspensions. As far as playmaking ability, I, I think we do have playmakers. I think they're developing. I think um, Antonio Williams uh, with Carter, with Ratliff Williams, with Newsom. We just have to find someone to get them the ball, and we have to have more consistent play on the offensive line. Defensively, I do think that we, uh, we're we in need of some of those big play guys. I, it just seems like over the past uh, few years or so, uh, probably since my time a little before, there's always been – some type of defensive study Carolina, whether the, the Carolina's defense was good or whether they're bad. It seems like there was always one or two players on there who who, had, who could, who probably could have played for anybody in the country. And I think that we're kind of missing that. Uh, I know uh, Naz uh, Jones is probably the last player that we had that I know every week he's going out there, he's going to make a play or he's going to do something to positively affect the game. So I do think we're missing a little bit of that uh, big playability on defense. All right, Taylor, let's get your thoughts. Yeah, besides quarterback, 
I think Carolina is really struggling with the interior of their offensive line um, at center and both guard positions, finding consistent play. Um, I think that their cornerbacks are really struggling. Um, No quarterback right now is going to be afraid to throw on any of them. And then uh, you're just getting kind of average play from the rest of the team outside of uh, your front four on defense, Cole Holcomb, Dominique Ross, and then I would say your two tackles on offense are the only people that, you know, have really stood out to me so far. And then you look at that front four on defense, Tamon Fox, Malik Carney, Jeremiah Clark, Jason Strobridge. Those are all players that I think have played, you know, great to exceptional so far this season. But how many games have they all four of those guys been on the field at one time? And I think it's only that first game against California with suspensions. So it's just, it's just, you know, guys not being available, um, no leaders to kind of rally the team around and be like, this is what we have to do. This is what we have to accomplish. And then obviously like the person mentioned quarterback, it's, it's to the point where, you know, we think that these receivers are good. We think we have um, these big time playmakers and Daz Newsom and Anthony Ratliff Williams. And we heard all the coaches raving about De'Ami Brown, but if you don't have somebody to get them the ball, it's, it's hard to tell what they can do. And then from a coaching perspective, you know, the coaches, the coaches don't want to have this like vanilla offense where they're just throwing wide all the time. But right now it's the only thing you could do offensively because neither of your quarterbacks for, you know, whether it's physical talent or mental, neither quarterback can complete a down, a downfield pass right now. So you're just extremely limited in what you could do offensively. And I hate to go back to this uh, since we've talked about it so much, guys, but there was actually a pretty decent question I thought on the quarterbacks I completely overlooked. And it just come. and this one talks about confidence. And I think that you can actually extrapolate this to basically any position. But the question was specifically about Chas Surratt and the discussion that um, the Buck Sanders, Tommy Ashley, and Jason Staples had in the post-Miami podcast where they talked about how a young quarterback could possibly be ruined or shook if they are thrust into a position and you know that they're just not ready for. And so the question was, given that how Surratt played, do you think that that's what happened to him? And in general, do you guys think that you know there is such a thing as a young player possibly getting quote unquote ruined and then not being the player that they ultimately could have been? Um, again, I think Mike has talked about that, or actually no, it's um, I'm thinking of Garrett Reynolds. I think EJ, you told the story about you know Garrett's first time playing. So EJ, let's start actually with you on the question there. You know, what do you think about the the idea that? Surratt's confidence just may have gotten completely shot last season. And, you know, how do you view that, uh, just that phenomenon happening overall? I I don't think that his confidence got shot. I think like uh, Mike mentioned, I think that he was with the scout team and I just don't think he was in a mental position. I mean, you got to look at it from his perspective. He was with the scout team. He does, he does not really feeling like he's a part of the offense and then the team's not doing well. So he feels like he has nothing to lose when he go out there. So I don't think that he was ruined, but I do believe that 
that can happen. I mean, I, I think that you can go out and you can become so shell shocked that it can hinder your development. I mean, you, you could be watching film and every time you're out there, you're like, I know what I want to do. But last time I was in this game or last time I was in this position, this and this happened. So it can kind of create a certain level of PTSD for, for a young player, especially if they're not a mentally tough or mentally strong person. I think that early struggles and uh, early struggles and early failures can kind of throw a player's career off. All right, Taylor. Now, obviously you have the perspective of coming on as a walk on. So, you know, when you're talking about having the confidence and everything like that, you know, how easy do you think it is for a player to get shook in that way and potentially try to recover? Yeah, I think it's easy to get shook if, especially if your first experience or your first couple of experiences are, you know, really negative. But I don't think Chaz Surratt was, you know, shaken to the point where he was broken. You know, since training camp ended, uh, what was that, probably four weeks ago, he's been on the scout team. You know, he hasn't had to, you know, look to the signal, get a call. He's just been looking at a piece of paper that tells you what play to run from the other team's offense. So I just don't think he was, you know, prepared to go into the Miami game on a short week against arguably a top five defense. Um, statistically, you know, they force teams to get to uncomfortable third down situations and they do a good job creating turnovers. So I think all those things kind of added up to there was very little chance for Chas to succeed in that game, which is why I, which is why personally I wouldn't give up on Chas and what he could do in the offense, because uh, you saw it in flashes last year where he, he was able to run an offense a lot better than what he did on Thursday. And I don't think it's, it's not like Miami prepared for him knowing that he was going to be the starter of the entire game or new situations that can make him uncomfortable. They were, Manny Diaz was just calling his base defense and calling a normal game for him, and it was just getting Chaz uh, rattled to that point. But I do think playing somebody who's not ready, um, especially a young player like a true freshman, um, it does have the opportunity to uh, to hinder their development where you know they're going in every rep and they're just saying, like, I know something bad's going to happen. And when you go in with that mindset that something bad's going to happen, more often than not, it's going to happen because you're thinking it and you're thinking it into existence. So let's actually uh, have some story time from you guys. And Taylor, since you just got done talking, we can start with you. You know, was there ever a time during your playing career for the Heels where you did run across that situation where your confidence did get shaken? And if so, what would you do to kind of overcome that? I think my confidence got shaken at one point where it just felt like it wasn't every ball that I was dropping, but I just had a, a higher number of like drops in a week. And uh, it just, it just got to the point where, you know, you were lining up out there and instead of with the mindset, like I want this ball coming to me, like I would be looking into the scout team and like Mitch Trubisky would be the quarterback. And I'm like, please don't look at me, Mitch. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to have a drop right here. But like <laughs> the only thing like you could do for that is just, just put in the work and feel like you are prepared. Like I would stay after, like, that's why me and Mac became like best friends. Cause I could go up to him with like any question I had, like, 
hey, I want to try to play special teams. Like, what can I do for that? And, like, he would stay after with me at practice for, like, 45 minutes when he had, like, no other reason to be staying after. Or I'm like, hey, I'm having, like, a, a bad case of, like, drops right now. Like, what can I do for that? And then Coach Brewer was also a huge help for that. And, you know, go, going up to Coach Brewer and knowing all of the players that he kind of coached, and I knew that this wasn't going to be the first time that he's ever experienced, you know, a receiver who had, like, a higher number of drops. And he uh, he gave me, like, great drills to to do after practice. And it got to the point where, like, a day or two later, I got to the point where – it. I wasn't even thinking about it anymore. I was just more so reacting and making catches. All right, DJ, same question to you, man. Let's hear some stories. I'll probably say my confidence was at its lowest, probably midway through my junior, uh, my redshirt junior season. Uh, I'd had a, I've been getting progressively better over the first two years. And uh, I kind of, to be honest with you, I came into the season a little heavy. So it's like, I was just a step, a step slow on all my pass rushes and like everything was just predictable. So it's like, I got to the point where I wanted to tell coach, like, look, just take me off the field on third downs. I'm only hurting the team. Just let me play on the rundowns. And um, I just used that motivation in the off season to, to train with, with some guys with Kentuan and Holly and guys that are graduated before me and just spend more time with coach Blake and Robert Quinn and some of the other guys who are better pass rushers than me just to try to improve on that. And I think that's, that's part of the reason why I think that the group of guys that I play with are, we're so close knit now because all of us had our moments where we kind of lost our confidence, but you could never tell because everybody was there to rally around them and pick them up. But um, Hey, I definitely have to say that, that my junior year was, was, was pretty rough for me. Uh, Confidence was shaking a whole lot, but Luckily, with the support of my teammates and coaches, I was able to bounce back from that. Yeah, a lot of the times, I think, um, you know, being far away from home, you could feel isolated when you're going through your problems. But from a playing perspective, you just have to, you know, keep in mind that you're not going to be the first person who's going through experiences like this. You know, the guys that you're probably living with are going through something similar or they have gone through something similar. And it's just it just brings more that family uh, atmosphere where you know everybody's imperfections, but at the end of the day, you're all going to work towards being the the best you and being somebody that the person next to you can trust. So I'm glad that both of you guys actually touched on that because this is where I wanted to start wrapping up the podcast. Is the the final one of the final questions here was dealing with the culture of the team. And both of you guys touched upon it earlier where, you know, what was lacking potentially is that leadership from the players themselves. And the question asked is that if there is a coaching change or even really if there isn't, when you're talking about changing a culture, what really goes into that? And how long do you think it realistically takes for a culture of a program and a team to change. So uh, Taylor, let's have you start off with that one. I wouldn't say there's like a exact science or an exact time frame. It's just how soon can whoever the coach is, how soon the players just buy into what he's saying, what he's coaching, the the team goals of the team. Because, you know, from 2014 to 2015, we didn't all of a sudden get like the greatest coaches in the world or we didn't all of a sudden 
get a bunch of great recruits and a bunch of transfers to come in. It was just a bunch of guys who were like, you know what? We're tired of losing. We're tired of making excuses. We're just going to come in. Um, we also had a lot of guys who that was their first time kind of getting um, more reps and more experience. And it was a lot of guys who, you know, basically their whole playing career, they were never given anything. Um, they weren't highly recruited guys like, um, Jeff Schottmer, Matt Collins, these guys who had to come in and work for everything. So they already brought that hardworking atmosphere and it just worked its way down to the entire team because like I would look out and see Schottmer going 110% every practice. And I'm like, shoot, if, if Jeff's doing that, like, why can't I do that? And then once you have that atmosphere where everybody's like, I constantly have to get better because, you know, the there's like this saying like if you don't think the other team's working just as hard as you like you're crazy like somebody out there is going 110 percent so you have to always be on and you know always striving to be better so it's just a it's just a matter of when these guys can buy in and um rally around each other and just put an end to making excuses put an end to feeling like this entitlement or feeling like you're up on this pedestal like you have to come down to earth and be like you know what we're not we're not as good as we think we are and we're gonna have to work even harder for it all right ej you actually were at carolina when the heels went through a coaching staff change so in your answer i'd like to see if you could touch on that a little bit as well i think a culture change i don't think it i don't think it'll take that long if you if you're saying the right message to the right group of guys i mean guys that just really don't didn't know how to put what they felt into words into an attitude and just being sick of the way things are going and just committing to the attitude and committing to the actions that are going to change that. And uh, for us, uh, I, I think our biggest change was just uh, the culture change was expecting to win instead of hoping we won. I don't think coach Davis and coach Bunning's philosophies were that much different. Maybe coaching styles were, but as far as overall philosophies, it was the same thing. I think coach Davis just got us to buy in because one, we knew that he had a track record of success. And we knew that if we listened to what he was saying, um, if we, if we listened to what he was saying, that we'd be successful too. So I think that really was, was the big change in that program, not to add, not, not to mention the talent and the players that coach Davis were recruiting were very similar to us. Uh, so it wasn't hard to kind of keep that culture going. So I think that once it's ingrained, once the players are sick of, of de dealing with what they've dealt with before and they're committed to the actions to change it, I think that it can be changed. And you, you saw that happen with us during our coaching change. I mean, we were a, a mediocre team at best, but then with mostly the same guys who had just went three and nine, we turn around and we put together some of the seasons and some of the teams that we were able to. So uh, a culture change can, can affect the group greatly. And then actually you mentioned too there um, about, you know, how there was that year to year change EJ and, you know, Taylor, you've mentioned that before is the, the difference between 14 and 15, you know, would you attribute that to really a culture change or what kind of fueled that turnaround for you guys? It was just a culture change, um, guys coming together and saying, you know, the standard for where we want to be as a team, we're just not putting in what we're saying we want. Like we were saying we wanted to be a great team, but we weren't doing everything it took to be a great team. So I think 
especially after that South Carolina loss, it brought everybody together where it was like, guys, just find your why. Why are you playing football? It could be for economic reasons. It could be because you love the game. Just find whatever it is that, you know, gets you out of bed in the morning and then just refocus all that energy toward being the best team. We say we want to be coastal champions. We say we want to play in, you know, this great bowl game. But until your actions, everything you do, the weight room, nutrition, practice, preparation, until you're doing everything that it takes to be a champion, like you can't expect to just go through the motions and be a champion. So EJ, you talked about leadership a couple times here. You know, when when your team went through that that big time change there, how did the leaders truly emerge? I mean, was that just were some guys, you know, that just stepped it up or really just what was the whole situation that led to that? I think for us, we, we had a, a group of seniors. Uh, so Coach Davis's first year there, we had a group of seniors that were very loyal to Coach Button, but they were sick of of losing, and they didn't want their senior year to go that way. So with a lot of – and we also had a, a lot of young guys that were heavily involved in everything we did. I mean, we had Brandon Tate on offense. Uh, we had a, a lot of guys on defense that had pretty much been playing since they were freshmen. So we had a lot of younger guys in positions that were very important and influential to what happened on Saturday. So I think that we naturally just evolved into leaders. We were so used to to kind of being leaders amongst our class that that's how it emerged. And I, and I always tell anybody, like, what, what, what did the leadership structure look like at Carolina? I would say that it starts out with guys being vocal amongst the people that they came in with. I mean, because those are the guys that, that you're lifting with. Those are the guys that you're going to study hall with. Then you start as you start to play more, you start to become a little bit more vocal within your uh, within your position group. And then after position group, you, you become a leader on defense. And the next thing you know, you're standing in front of the team on Friday nights giving the speech before the game. So I think all of it is a national a natural evolution that kind of trickled down from Coach Davis to the seniors and into the seniors uh, to the rest of the team. All right, guys. So let's go ahead and start wrapping this one up. And to go ahead and do that, I wanted to get y'all's thoughts on the bye week. So, you know, Carolina is going into the bye week, having just played their worst game of the season. Uh, well, out in the, I, I don't want to call it the worst because that ECU loss is it's in the conversation. Yeah, it's it's just not been a good season so far. And what do you guys think the the team should be doing now going into this bye week? You know, Taylor, let's get your thoughts on that one, man. Yeah, first off, if, you know, a lot of fans, I feel like they think during the bye week you're preparing for Virginia Tech, but you're not doing that. You're focusing on yourself. It's basically like another week of training camp where you're focused on being the best Carolina team you can be and picking up the offense and learning the defense. And then once you get into next week is when you get into the Virginia Tech time. So I would say it's it's business as usual for the team this week. And once you get into next week is when you're transitioning to Virginia Tech. So I think the coaches, they're getting a head start watching Virginia Tech, but you, you don't want to put more on the players plates right now because in the bye week it's just about focusing on you know how each individual can get better all right ej what about you do you think that the team should be doing anything you know specific or differently during this bye week no i think they i think that they need to one have a team meeting and they need to kind of figure out hey what are we going to do are we going to sink or swim for the rest of the season 
are we going to go out and perform? But uh, like Taylor said, it is back to training camp. It's, it's back to basics. It's back to the fundamentals. Uh, it's back to the, some of the basic nuances and ins and outs of the offensive and defensive scheme. And uh, as we kind of alluded to earlier with the quarterbacks, it's a time to see uh, to get some of those younger guys, some of those freshmen, some of the guys who didn't play that much, to get them in some of the rotation with the, and mix them in with some of the starters in the second team just to see how they perform out there, to trying to kind of get them ready uh, for if they need them potentially for the rest of the season. As we know, naturally, at the end of the season, you start to see more injuries. Uh, guys start to get more worn out. Guys get fatigued easier. So um, I think that they use this season, this, this uh, bye week, to really uh, kind of put to bed what happened earlier in the season, reflect on it, learn from it, and just work on the basic fundamentals that's going to help them perform uh, perform to their best ability when they play Virginia Tech. And Taylor, actually, the final question I had for you is, can you describe to us you know, what the coaches do during a bye week? Is there anything specific or anything you know that really stood out to you? No, it's it's basically treated just like a normal week, except you're not preparing for another team in terms of what the coaches are doing to prepare the players. But from coach to coach, they're thinking about, you know, how they could gain an advantage over Virginia Tech. Um, if Virginia Tech is playing this weekend, they'll all watch that game and try to pick it apart as soon as possible and just having another game to kind of uh, game plan and come up with the best game plan possible for next week. All right. Well, guys, that was all the questions that we got for this go around. So we want to say thank you to all the listeners who did provide those to us. We will be back next week after the bye to look ahead to the Virginia Tech game. It could be a very, very pivotal thing. And, you know, seven o'clock kickoff. I, I want to hear. I want you guys to start getting your stories together about you know playing night games in Keene Stadium, and uh, you know let's go ahead and get that for the for the fans and listeners. But for now, we will go ahead and sign off, guys. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Inside Carolina podcast, presented by Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill. Get fifteen percent off your online order with the promo code Heels fifteen. Go to jerseymikes.com slash order now. Some brands offer you low finance or cash back or servicing. Renault don't do ors. We do ands. The Renault Kajar with 1.91% APR and 1,000 euro cash back and three years servicing, saving you thousands. Renault, the brand with the ands. Visit your local Renault dealer. Finances made under a higher purchase agreement. Terms and conditions apply. Deposit required. Subject to lending criteria. See reno.ie.